0: My guest on today's show is Daniel Adamson, a senior managing director at Wafra and the president of Capital Constellation, a joint venture between mega asset owners in Europe, North America, and the Middle East that invests in the next generation of private equity managers. Our conversation focuses on this innovative joint venture and how a group of large asset owners came together to scale their resources. We touch on a host of issues relating to the formation and implementation of the business, the many possibilities that are arising from this novel setup, and the serious challenges in bringing it to fruition. I suspect we'll see more efforts by asset owners to disintermediate pieces of the investment value chain, although as you'll hear, it's a lot easier said than done. We recorded this conversation before the pandemic took hold. Rest assured, Daniel and his colleagues' global travel that you'll soon hear about has turned virtual with the rest of us. Please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Adamson. Daniel, great to see you.
1: Great to see you too.
0: Why don't we start with where the seeds of your interest in this work began?
1: That's a challenging question because you couldn't imagine a childhood that was further from my current pursuits than the one that I actually had. So I was in school until I was 26. I'm the the child of, of two academics. I didn't even know what business was. I remember asking my dad growing up, so who live in all these nice houses? And he really didn't know either. When both of your parents do the same thing, whether they're doctors or professional athletes. I think you just assume that that's what all adults do. And I was an only child until I was nine. My folks, as I said, were both academics and very academic academics, if you know what I mean, a history professor and a developmental psychologist. Their friends were academics. Their kids were my friends. And so I was in this kind of guild that was focused on the life of the mind, not the life of commerce. And it took me through my early 20s to begin to realize that as much as that was the only life that I'd known, it wasn't really the life that I wanted. I think the commonality between that upbringing and the world of investing is that both of them are lenses on the whole world. So if you're a philosopher, you get to think about everything through the lens of philosophy. And if you're an investor, you get to think about everything through markets And while even at 26, 28, when I was at McKinsey, 29, when I was at Lehman getting my real education, I still might not have said yet that investing was for me. I was looking for the same kind of thrill that I had in the academic world of getting to see the whole world from my desk.
0: What was the most influential part of your academic career on your window into how you think today?
1: When people see my academic background, law school, philosophy graduate school, econ as an undergrad, people assume that, well, law school must be relevant to an investment career and an econ, surely that's relevant. And they almost brush the philosophy degree under the rug as a kind of slightly embarrassing two years of, of jaunting through the world of ideas rather than anything practical. But actually, that was the most helpful. Because especially the type of philosophy that I studied, which was contemporary analytical philosophy, and I studied at All Souls College at Oxford, and I had just the most rigorous experience imaginable, what you're doing is you're questioning basic assumptions, and you're doing it in a not necessarily a data-driven way, but a rigorous logical way, coming to conclusions that you share with very smart peers and colleagues and get them to pressure test them for you. That's great training for investment because the quickest way to lose money is to go into a situation being sure that you're right. And if you learn one thing as a philosophy student is that you're probably not right.
0: And so where did your path take you to leading up to what became, you know, where you're sitting at Waffer and Capital Constellation?
1: Sure. So with that realization that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial and global coming out of Yale Law School, this is 2003. I joined McKinsey & Company for the reasons anyone should join, you know, get to see the whole world. I thought they were going to send me to Paris and, and Tokyo. Actually, my first McKinsey assignment was in Rochester, New York, which was lovely. And then my second one was in Rochester, Minnesota. So it wasn't exactly the run of world-class cities that I expected, but I learned a lot. And then from there, I had the wisdom and foresight to join Lehman Brothers in 2006, which, while obviously a disaster in terms of what happened with the business, turned out to be invaluable to me personally in my education. So my job there was to advise the suite of hedge funds on corporate enterprise value creation. So how do they raise money? How do they think about the market for selling GP stakes was really just emerging around 2006, 2007. Uh, How do they think about talent? How do they think about their competition? And then of course with Lehman itself imploding and creating a slew of problems for the very managers that I was there to advise. As a 29-year-old, I got an incredible education in the challenges of forming any kind of partnership or doing anything entrepreneurial. I remember one of my my professional mentors at the time said, Daniel, if I could teach you one thing, it's that all partnerships fail. And I thought, wow, what a grim lesson in life. And I certainly hope that's not the case. And and a lot of the work that I've done since has been motivated by that idea that not all partnerships should fail. That we can build a more enduring form of partnership. So thinking a lot about governance, thinking a lot about how you, you structure something internationally to create a positive sum game where partners benefit from working together. And from Lehman? Oh, so from Lehman, I joined Bridgewater up in Connecticut, which was incredibly eye-opening. I worked for Ray, who is amongst the most unique and insightful human beings you could possibly come across. It wasn't for me, as I think many people will say is true for them, and that's by design. So I quit after about a year. So I left Bridgewater very amicably, wound up running my own firm for a few years before joining Ares, where... I got to be uh, head of investor relations and support the firm through the transition from a privately held company to a public company. We went from 40 billion in AUM to now I think it's 150 or thereabouts. So, dramatic transformation, which was fascinating to witness. And then from there, I had the great good fortune we had our kids, moved back to the East Coast, looking for something here. And I'll tell you uh, about Wafra and Constellation.
0: Yeah. Well, why don't you dive right in?
1: Sure. So when I joined Wafra, which is a $25 billion alternatives manager based on, on Park Avenue with offices around the world, but headquartered here in New York, I'll confess that I had not heard of it. I was picking between a couple other professional opportunities. But a good friend of mine, who's now the CIO of Wafra, when I presented him these other two opportunities, said, I have a third idea for you. And why don't you come in? And sure enough, two weeks later, I'd seen the light. And I'll tell you what I saw, which is going back to that philosophy training, there's this distinction that people make between LP and GP, which has its uses for sure. But Wafra has the benefit of being a bit of both. So $25 billion as a GP, Wafra invests in everything from alternative 21st century real estate to alternative finance to private equity. We have a big strategic partnership business, which I'll talk about in the context of Constellation. We do liquid alts, hedge funds, etc. But we do it in the context of a kind of balance sheet entity that grows its capital on the basis of good ideas that type of entrepreneurship in the context of a 35 year old institution with 25 billion dollars is very rare and it comes from the special relationship that wafra has with its capital providers and that was something that we wanted to replicate at a higher scale with multiple partners in constellation when you were coming into wafra what were you coming in to do initially I'm so grateful that Wafra took the chance to hire me when it was absolutely unclear what specific value I was going to add. I think folks thought this is somebody we'd like to work with and let's see what happens. Which, incidentally, I think is the way a lot of great professional relationships begin rather than filling a particular box. I didn't come in with an idea of Constellation, nor was Constellation my idea alone. And I want to talk about the collective effort that went into putting it together both with the Wafra team that had already for a decade been doing GP stakes and GP seating, which is something that people should understand in order to understand Constellation, and then the work that our partner asset owners like Alaska and Railpen and Sweden and the Kuwait Investment Authority and others contributed.
0: We'll certainly get into specifically what you're doing with Constellation there's been this shift in these asset owners sort of shifting the way they invest in the markets so we hear about it with the Canadian plans and otherwise what have you seen as these kind of trends in the seats you've had leading into this about in particular those pools of capital
1: I'd like to start with three trends that have popped out for me in the last ten years the first 10 years ago, we weren't talking about asset owners. People talked about pensions, sovereign wealth funds was becoming a term of art and started to be picked up in the press around a decade ago. Whether it's the financial crisis or other awakenings within that community of state-affiliated, pension-affiliated asset allocators, a number of institutions were born Around 2008, 2009, 2010, that brought together sovereigns and pensions in new ways. You had the International Forum for Sovereign Wealth Funds, the Institutional Investor Roundtable, the Fiduciary Investor Roundtable for Cooperation and Partnership. I will not bore you with the acronyms for ten more of these, but the amazing thing is that there's about let's say a hundred trillion of institutional AUM in the world, which. To help people figure out what that means, I like to say, look, world gross product is 80 trillion, 60 trillion, depending on who you ask and how you calculate it. So you're talking about more than one year of world gross product saved by institutions. And if you look at the concentration of that capital, you've got 20 or 30 groups that have the ability to move mountains to move tens of trillions of dollars in a concerted way. And those groups were getting together. So I'll come back to this when we talk about how Constellation was started. But I met in New Zealand in 2016 with about 15 trillion of asset owners. We were in that room because of Wafra's affiliation with asset owners in Kuwait. And I was talking to Angela Rodell, the CEO of the Alaska Permanent Fund, and later met Paul Bishop, the head of alternatives at RealPen. And it was this first generation of institutions really convened people. And by the time I arrived on the scene in 2016... There was some frustration that that convening hadn't led to concrete, formal joint ventures between asset owners on different continents. So there was a real desire to do something. The second mega trend, if you will, that fed into Constellation is if you look at where did the smartest, the best minds in the developed world go in the 1980s, it was so many of them at least went to Wall Street. It was the birth of large alternative investment institutions. If you look at Blackstone, BlackRock, KKR, Carlisle, Apollo, Ares, etc., they were all born a generation ago. Their founders are still there, and they're all well north of a 1,000 people at this point. So whereas in the 1950s and 1960s, I think the American dream, if you were a well educated kid, was to write the great American novel or to work for NASA. In the 80s, a lot of people went to Wall Street. And so you have this amazing brain power that's now possessed by people and training who are in their 50s and 60s, who have the track record, the personal resources, the networks, the credibility the savvy to do something entrepreneurial if they choose and at the same time those large institutions are dealing with succession challenges and and trying to restructure and then the third piece is we've seen the birth of a new type of organization in the last 20 years i would argue not so much in our Industry, but elsewhere, whereas in the 20th century, the archetypal business was Kodak, you know, one mainframe, one business card, one brand, one corporate strategy and say what you will of the big PE shops and asset managers, they're born in that century. That's how they operate. They have a hierarchy that leads up to a single CEO what we've seen in other industries and airbnb is a great example of this but there are many many others is entrepreneurs working together through a kind of virtual company through tech through governance enables animal spirits to flourish and creates a kind of framework for in the best scenario for people to to run their own businesses And we haven't seen that in finance. I'll talk about Constellation in the context of those three trends.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where we're going to go. What you've laid out is a group of large asset owners labeled as such who want to do something together. Talented people and the potential to work together in a different way than sitting all in the same office. So you bring that together. And how do you get from there to
1: something actionable? with a great deal of effort, suffering, long plane rides, conference calls across multiple time zones. So the origin story for Constellation is twofold. First, we had an amazing team at Wafra that had been acquiring stakes in GPs and seeding new GPs, especially in private markets, since about 2011. And I won't go into them here, but... A lot of household names in terms of the groups that we've partnered with. So a great deal of expertise on the team that predated me in how to innovate in terms of structure. And I think a lot of the the greatest innovations in financial markets have come not through technology changes, but through structural changes. So that's one piece of the story. The other piece is I mentioned that trip to New Zealand, which was really memorable because I I sat next to Angela Rodell, the CEO of the Alaska Permanent Fund, and I asked her, what's your five-year strategic plan for Alaska? And she said, well, we'd love, number one, to get more into private markets, to go truly global in our focus across segments of that market from private debt to private equity to infrastructure to real estate. We're in Juneau. We have a small team, we have 65 billion of AUM. We need to be in private markets in a bigger and bigger way. We have some very talented people. But my sense, and this is Angela talking, is that we need to partner with other institutions to do this right. And so she was already thinking about the positive sum model for sovereign to sovereign, pension to pension partnership. and. Then we were fortunate enough as I mentioned to meet Paul Bishop from Railpen which is a venerable UK pension system and he too had this attitude that we should collaborate and we had the makings then of a of a true partnership between three groups on three different continents each of whom had different deal flow different internal capabilities and we decided let's start with 3 because you add more partners to a mix like this, and it just becomes exponentially more difficult. And we spent a year together thinking about what would a new business that's owned pro rata by each of our entities look like. And we called it Constellation, as the name suggests, bringing stars together from, from a vast geographic base. And in terms of what we would do with Constellation as a dedicated pool of discretionary capital, seeding the work that Wofford had been doing since 2011, backing new managers seemed like a good path to improving knowledge flow, deal flow, expertise across all of our, all of our institutions. So the vision early on was if we're seeding three or four new managers a year and doing it in this shared framework Already we've seeded four and we're under exclusivity with two more. So if we keep at that pace, imagine we have 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 managers across every major asset class, across every major geography, who are feeding us co-investments, fund vintage opportunities, and who we are aligned with because we own a piece of their business. What can you get out of that distributed brain, that kind of hive mind I think we're only beginning to see that today now there's been a lot of excitement here in our second year of doing business together but that was the core idea of which partnership and to use that partnership to create better alignment with asset managers okay
0: so there's there's so much to dive into with this and why don't we start with the selection of the investment opportunity in the sense you mentioned wafra was doing this seeding But a lot of what we hear about is this move to get closer to the underlying security. So whether it's co-investments with private equity sponsors, even lead investments. So as you're forming a new organization, how did you think about where to start on that investment activity if you're building sort of a new team and why not go all the way to the end and do direct deals?
1: First of all, at Wafra, we do sometimes do direct deals. But I think any responsible pension CIO or CEO will tell you if they have the governance to do what the Canadians have done or the Singaporeans have done and really build what you might call a non-for-profit GP in the context of a state plan. Alaska doesn't have that capability. Railpen doesn't have that capability. Sweden and KIA just aren't structurally built to do that. And so in some sense, you know, if you want to say that the Canadian model is the most idealistic, I think it is. Our model is a step in that direction, but one in which we recognize that as asset owners, we're going to continue to need to work with the most talented GPs. We want better alignment with them so that we're getting better information, access to deal flow. Yes, there's some complexity around creating that alignment, but in the end, we're trying to build a throwback relationship to a simpler era in which GPs and LPs trusted each other in a different way. I was listening to a recent version of your podcast, and there was a mention of a company that helps LPs validate the fee and carry that they're paying to GPs. I think to me that was emblematic of a breakdown in trust, which we've seen since the financial crisis, and we wanted to, return to Simpler way of working together. So to answer your question, I think the core part of what we do as seating is ask, you know, most investors start with the question, what should I own? What should I pay for it? When should I buy it? Where should I buy it? Those sorts of questions. We start with the question, who should I trust? Who's excellent in this area? So most of what we do is a bottoms-up approach rather than thematic And we are looking for truly outstanding investment talent and business building talent who we want to partner with. And in Constellation, yes, we've done four, going on six of these partnerships. Prior to that, in Wafra, we'd done 12. So we're now up to about 16 to 18 of these partnerships. They're all going well. So if you remember that that senior partner who told me all partnerships fail, you know, not necessarily. If you structure it the right way, if you've got the right spirit in terms of how you're going to work together and add value to each other, you know, from the perspective of an asset manager, we have a trillion dollars of AUM amongst our partner institutions. And that's just today with the five that we have, they should be focused on doing what they do best, which is pick securities. As you put it, the ability to add value in both directions is so obvious that if we just clear our minds of other distractions and focus on making the flow of ideas and capital happen between those two groups. The opportunity for value creation on both sides is enormous. Yeah.
0: To get there, you mentioned structure a few times. So why don't we start with how did you structure and staff Constellation?
1: The first thing, people talk about seeding Obviously, I know you're very familiar with hedge fund seeding, and and that was where these things began. I've been surprised over the years that asset owners, big pensions and sovereigns, that is, haven't done more to not just seed managers, but to create new ones that they own 100%. Arguably, that's what OMERS and GIC and Tomasic and others have done, but with a one-to-one relationship between the GP and the pool of capital. There's been press out of CalPERS in the last couple of years about creating an an internal GP. If you can do it, and not everybody has the governance to get it done, what a great way to become aligned. You give the GP the flexibility to operate commercially outside the, the reach of the politics of whatever government is leading the particular pension or sovereign. But you also align them with the goals of the end constituents. So when we set up Constellation, our first challenge was to set it up in a way that had those benefits as a new GP Constellation should be owned in equal parts by Alaska, Railpen, and PIFIS in Kuwait. And it's as simple as that. It's owned 33% by each group. We then structured it in such a way that other investors, such as the Swedish and the Kuwait Investment Authority, who, who by regulation generally don't own an operating company, could come in in parallel. And with that structure, we continue to grow. And we continue to grow in a way that if enterprise value is really created in this, which we expect it to be over the next five or 10 years, who gets that? You know, when Blackstone builds a multi hundred billion dollar institution and then it goes public. None of the pensions that put money into Blackstone in its early days get any benefit directly from its IPO. In fact, you could argue that it creates misalignments and confusion because now Blackstone has two masters their shareholders and their LPs. Here, we wanted to keep it simpler, where if Constellation as a GP grows and creates enterprise value, and this is not a negligible point, right? There's 15 trillion dollars of enterprise value held in asset management firms. Compare that to the hundred trillion of AUM held institutionally. You realize this is a massive migration of value from institutions to the managers that serve them. So getting a fair piece of that number one constellation should be set up to benefit the asset owners that set it up. And number two, when we seed a new manager, we become their partner for life. So yes, they still control the majority of their economics. They probably actually get a better deal than they had when they were at XYZ large shop and the house took 50%. But the deal that they get is aligned with us. And that enables a really different sort of relationship when it comes to co or or support to them on value creation activities like forming capital or underwriting new deals. Yeah.
0: So there's certainly an elegance to the flow of value creation and that economic structure to those asset owners. Though ultimately you and your team are individuals working for these asset owners. And so how do you get aligned in your incentives as individuals, as the people doing these deals and creating these economics
1: has to work. And we started with a white blank sheet of paper on that point. And because we had the benefit of three parties around the table, and a year to build this right, it was crucial to us that we have the right long-term alignment. And you can't forget about management. Our principles there were it should be very long-term alignment, so 10 years plus. It should still be a situation in which the vast majority of the enterprise value created is owned by the asset owners that set us up. So we kind of started from the opposite end of a typical GP. So when a typical GP is set up, the founder owns 100%. And maybe they get diluted later by selling a piece to a large asset owner. We started with asset owners on 100% and management can vest in if certain milestones are reached over a very long period of time to something that will be meaningful to them and keep them part of the fold. And I think that's up and down consistent with our philosophy.
0: And how does the management structure work? So clearly you're the president of this organization who else is involved and from which institutions
1: well first and foremost our board so we have a board of the three founding asset owners paul bishop who's the head of private markets at Railpen; steve mosley who's now the deputy cio of alaska and russell valdez who's the cio of wafra or the three founding board members it couldn't be simpler in terms of a structure one organization one vote and because everyone put in an equal amount it's very, very straightforward. And we like that. I think what our best move in building Constellation has been the choice of partners, both the individual people and the organizations. Then, because I mentioned that we wanted to accommodate other organizations outside those three, I think the ultimate goal would be to have, let's say, 10 to 12 asset owners be part of this Beyond that, I think we start to get diseconomies of scale, and it's harder to share information. To me, the analogy has always been, it should feel like a seminar, not a lecture. People are really exchanging ideas, back to that philosophy degree. So we created a strategic committee, which includes Sweden and the Kuwait Investment Authority, and we'll continue to grow it from there. So that's the simple governance piece. In terms of the team... Each of those organizations is really involved. So RailPen has contributed a great deal when it comes especially to things like sustainable ownership where they have a lead. Alaska submits countless potential seed and growth stage GP stake opportunities for us. The Wafra investment team has a mandate to source diligence and execute seed and growth stage GP stake transactions on behalf of constellation so we have the benefit of a 37 person investment team that's led by Russell Valdez who's one of our board members Connor Stewart others who are who are intimately involved so one of the benefits of bringing together so many institutions if you build it as a virtual company is that while each of those groups may be short-staffed, which is a common problem in the pension and sovereign world, collectively, if you do it right, you have the resources and bandwidth to do so much more. And we get together all the time. It helps that Stockholm is amazing in June, and so is Alaska, and London is pretty much great any time of the year, and New York. So we get together at least four times a year, all over the world. We've met in Tokyo, we've met in New Zealand, we've met in Amsterdam to exchange ideas both within the asset owner and with the asset managers. And so on a
0: day-to-day basis, is it then the WAFRA team that's doing the meetings, conducting the due diligence, raising priorities for the decision-making unit?
1: Yes. So you can think of us as the management group Sometimes people ask me, why is this the only example of a sovereign-to-sovereign pension-to-pension collaboration that has discretionary capital? And we're at a little over a billion of discretionary capital at this stage. Why is it so hard? Other people seem to want to do it. And I think you either put the partnership together and then go find a GP, which can be challenging because investment committees don't want to approve an idea until you have the team. Or one group can contribute a team to the partnership, which is also challenging because if it's going well as an investment strategy, why should one sovereign or pension want to give it up? And so I think the hardest conversation that we had along the way was to talk to Kuwait about look, this is an investment strategy that's going very well, but think about it. If you're a new GP and you're interested in taking a hundred million dollars to be backed by Kuwait. How much more exciting would it be for you to be backed by a North American sovereign, a UK pension, a Scandinavian pension, two large Kuwaiti institutions. And then you've got three continents. And by the way, that proposition is growing and they have a total of a trillion of AUM. That's a different conversation. And it's not one that our, presumptive competition in the seating space can have with you. So the view was, this is an asset class where teaming up makes sense. I think there are some other asset classes where that's true, but this one, it's very obvious.
0: Was it tricky at all with any of those other partners in Constellation that wanted their own say in the types of managers that you would back?
1: So there are certainly some sovereigns and pensions for whom this sort of partnership would not work. If you have the luxury as a GIC, a Tomasic, an OMERS to effectively operate as a large non-for-profit GP with well-compensated direct investors, you may decide you don't need to ask the question, who should I partner with? You should ask the question, what should I buy? And then go buy it. In our case, most pensions and sovereigns don't have that luxury for all sorts of reasons. you know, The highest paid person in Wyoming is not the guy that runs the $20 billion state mineral wealth fund. It's the college football coach. So there are compensation issues globally. There's talent retention. These entities are not generally located in financial capitals. So there are reasons to pursue this kind of joint effort even if that means giving up discretion to a group that's based in New York that can manage the capital collectively. What I will say though is that 23 months ago, when we set out to do Constellation, we thought we were getting into the seeding business jointly. And we have done that. But taking a step back two years later, there have been a few surprises that speak to your question. First, we've noticed that slightly more mature GPs that might have two or three billion in AUM are still interested in this value proposition because. If they can get a catalytic investment from their, their ideal client base, which is large pensions and sovereigns globally, groups that can serve as a kind of golden reference in each geography that they need to build their business in, that's got a lot of value even at that stage. And the second more important realization is that while we're very excited about seeding and working with entrepreneurs is a great joy, seeding, let's be honest, is a fairly niche business. We will never be deploying tens of billions of dollars in this way, uh, at least not in a year. But what that seed gives you access to is all these different asset classes across illiquid private markets, all the co-invest, all the special situations, all the potential for warehousing a deal to support the manager and the asset owner to give them more time, the potential for direct lending that sponsor originated to the underlying portfolio company. What could we do in secondaries? I mean, we are just now thinking about how to connect this network of asset owners and asset managers, and it's going well. So one of our managers in the fall did a large, high-profile financial services transaction. Fiserv was bought by Motive. When they did that, we helped them warehouse the transaction. Others from our investment community, the asset owners behind Constellation, came in, took pieces of the Coinvest in addition. And so we've created this kind of beehive of activity, and a lot of our job is just to not mess it up. Because we have smart people around the table. And so while Woffer may be making the decision around seeding, you're opening up all these other much broader asset classes for ease of use for all the sovereigns and pensions that are involved.
0: How does the decision-making process work on the individual investments for any of these opportunities?
1: Well, if it's a seed, it's in Woffer's discretion to pull the trigger. And if it's something else, then it goes to our board. And I mentioned that our board is the three people that speak collectively for our balance sheet. And this is part of the challenge of setting up something like this, is, is the regulatory challenges of managing third-party capital, the fiduciary obligations that come with that. That's why it took us a year, and that's why we benefited so much from what I started by saying, you know, Wafra is unusual. We're a GP and an LP. So we are able to have conversations with other LPs, other asset owners, on a peer-to-peer basis. But we had the infrastructure of a GP as a SEC-registered investment advisor to manage capital. And we'll continue to innovate structurally so that we can keep pace with the with set of opportunities that's coming out of this ecosystem that we've built. Have there been any differences of an opinion
0: about pursuing either a specific investment, a seed or strategy within that board structure as of yet?
1: Not within the board structure. By the time something's gotten to that stage, we've, we've previewed it, we've talked about it, the board's been involved in meeting the manager, looking at a particular deal, where I think there's constructive tension in and if we didn't have this, it would be a shame because if you're bringing the best minds together from around the world and they don't occasionally disagree, then what's the point? Our mandate is broad. We can do anything in illiquid alts from infrastructure to private credit to private equity to real estate, to stuff that doesn't have a name. We can do it anywhere in the world. We can at times do it directly in the form of a co-invest or we can do it through a manager that we align with. To date, all of our deals have been in the U.S. and Europe. I don't think anyone's surprised by that. We've looked at opportunities in Asia and Africa and Latin America. Those are research projects for us now. I think where there's sometimes constructive tension is how quickly should we go into those markets and can we time our entrance into those regions with a new partnership with an asset owner in that region. So what's the phrase, never bring a knife to a gunfight? You know, if we're going to do something in a region, we want to be partnered with somebody that really knows what they're doing. Maybe the better analogy is don't be the dumbest guy around the poker table. If we're in Asia, how much would we benefit from a sovereign that has the local knowledge there? So this is a big strategic priority of ours, is to continue to build out our our base of asset owners, not with a view to raising new AUM because there's plenty in our current partnership group, but with a view to increasing our expertise and then increasing the aperture of investments that we can consider as a result.
0: Is that balance sheet structure a capital call? Is it commitments and capital calls? Yeah. And then is it as you invest that capital you go out and see who's interested or In contributing more because you think about a billion dollars in the context of however many trillions are on the balance sheets of these institutions it still is a drop in the bucket
1: absolutely and that's why we've been very cautious and conscious that to that point about partnerships and how difficult it is to succeed to start with measured steps so a lot of people would look at I think we're at about 1.2 billion right now would look at that as terrific first effort it's off the charts but The reality is, in light of the $100 trillion problem that we're trying to solve, which is how to empower asset owners to get better access, better intelligence, their fair piece of the enterprise value created within GPs, it's a drop in the bucket. And that's why we want to use seeding as a wedge into a more aligned relationship between GP and LP that can lead to all these other non-niche broader asset classes that can work together. And we have no specific AUM goal for Constellation. Our goal is to solve a certain type of problem for institutions to get them better deals, better access, better economics.
0: You're still early in the iterations of these investments. And today you could go And present to a new manager and say, you know, we have effectively permanent capital. There's no need to sell our stake down the road. At some point in time, it's likely that one of the partnerships that you back will fail. I mean, in theory, all of them fail, but many haven't. How have you thought about what the message is?
1: Our asset owner base has a generational time frame. Most of them are cash flow positive through 2060, 2070, if I had to to list of kind of fourth mega trend back when we were starting our conversation, I would have said it's a move to longer duration capital that matches longer duration underlying opportunities. Blackstone's been working at this. You see new structures all the time. It is hard for conventional GPs to operate in that way because they're looking for a crystallization of carry after five to 10 years, depending on the asset class. In our case, the opposite is true. It would be hard for us to operate if our plan was to sell in five to seven years. Because if you think about GPs, the kinds of groups that we back, they're either family-owned businesses or closely held partnerships. Not to knock Goldman or Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan, but if you're a family-owned business, who do you want as a partner? Somebody that's going to Come in for five or seven years and force you to restructure? Maybe sometimes, if especially if you're looking for the best price. But what we find is a lot of folks are looking for a generational timeframe partner. So, what that means is that in terms of the structure of our capital, it has to be quasi permanent. Yes, there needs to be a way for the investors to eventually pull money out, or what's the point? But on the flip side, it can't be tied to a specific arbitrary deadline if it's eight years or it's 10 plus one plus one. So in our model, when we back a new manager or a next generation manager that may already have a couple billion of AUM, we think of our return stream as, well, there's the LP commitment that we've made to them, and that will self-liquidate, touch wood. And then we have our GP ownership, which grows as their business grows and becomes this kind of growing annuity, which we can hold indefinitely. And yes, at some point they may come back to us and say, gosh, this has gone better than we expected. We'd like to buy that piece back from you. Or it makes sense for us to sell it to some third party or finance, come up with some financial solution that allows us to return capital to our asset owners. But the the basic view is, People talk about getting fee discounts. That's probably the most common way of, of approaching an early stage next generation manager LP investment. In our case, we're looking for alignment that could lead to effectively kind of negative fees in the long run where as the manager grows, we have this other return stream which can add significantly to to our bottom line. Which is to say, giving asset owners their rightful piece of the enterprise value that they help create by catalyzing these new businesses.
0: I'm still curious about the structure of your team, and you mentioned that the management team can kind of earn their way into ownership of Constellation. How about the people below the management team, and how do you compensate someone in a competitive world for talent?
1: I'm proud to say that because we had really smart people around the table as we were designing the governance, that we built something that has a lot of flexibility in it. So every year, the board gets to decide who's contributed. And we also have flexibility, which we plan to exercise to build advisory councils and to bring in industry leadership from around the world to support what we're doing. We have a kind of convening function within Constellation, so that that extends to more junior professionals that we want to ensure can grow with this business. And it has to do with ensuring that we're working closely with the asset owners up and down their mastheads and with others who can support us. And because we were born out of institutions like the International Forum of Sovereign Wealth Funds and the IIR, et cetera, there's just a natural community of people that we can draw on and where appropriate compensate to help us build something.
0: You mentioned at the onset, this notion of this activity being positive sum. And that is something you don't hear that much about. It's a nice ideal, but in a lot of capital markets and a lot of these pools of capital, individuals, incentives, people are compared to others. How have you tried to engender that positive sum game across these constituents?
1: I think the easiest way to do it, I mean, look, one of my biggest pet peeves, is that people tend to look at financial markets as either zero-sum or even negative-sum. And I think that comes from the fact that we were raised to view public markets as the archetype of how things are done, and I win, you lose, you win, I lose. And that is the case. If I'm writing an option and you're on the other side, one of us is going to do well, the other's not. In private markets, first and foremost, things are very different this is about value creation fundamentally and I think that's never been more true than today given where entry multiples typically are is that you have to have a value creation story with respect to GPs that we back and who are essentially the portfolio companies of constellation we have to have a value creation story around them and with respect to the asset owners that partner with us and have been the owners of this new entity we have to have a a value creation story for them, which may go beyond what we do specifically within constellation and where we're helping them in other source, other deal opportunities and improve their ability to execute in a range of markets across the world. So what I typically do is instead of attacking that bias that people have in some sort of philosophical way is we'll just give a real world opportunity. One of our managers that you, by the way, as an asset owner, own a piece of their business, has a $500 million or a billion dollar first fund, and they're trying to take down a $150 million ticket. How can we all do something that's to our collective benefit? Well, that, what's the manager's problem? It's, he needs to be money good on that deal, or else he's going to be elbowed out by some other GP, and it's too big for his fund, and everyone knows that. So if we can come up with our balance sheet and say, here's 75 million, you put in 75 million from your fund, go pursue the deal, huge help for him. By the way, that helps us because we own a piece of his firm. So already there's some mutualism. Then once that warehouse is put into place, It's famous that asset owners have eyes that are bigger than their stomachs when it comes to co-invest. They just can't move at the pace that these deals move and get things done in two weeks. Well, what if we could give you a year or six months and hold it on our balance sheet while you and your team evaluate it in Juneau or in Sweden? That's better for you. And it's also better for the asset manager, too, because now they can think strategically about which co-investors come in. Maybe they want to think about stapling that co-invest to a future fund vintage investment. There's freedom to be creative when you have balance sheet combined with alignment, combined with smart people working together. Is the likely outcome of that situation going to be a positive sum? I think yes.
0: When you get outside of the ecosystem of these asset owners for one of the managers you've backed there's always this question about the next LP and how do they perceive the outside owner of a GP. How did you think through either the amount that you'd be willing to own as a constellation of a GP and the incentives as someone else investing in one of the managers
1: you backed? So we're very mindful of that point. And I think the first... The first thing that has always given me reassurance is that the manager's alignment to performance, which is a big issue, is almost always better under a Constellation partnership than it would have been for them back when they were at XYZ household name private equity firm. Where at a big shop, you're contributing to the overhead, the founders are still there in essentially every situation. so it varies from to firm, but let's say it's 50% gets kept with the team and 50% goes up while each of our partnerships is negotiated individually. We're always way below that level. We're a significant perpetual minority owner, but we're not interfering with the upside economics. And in fact, a lot of managers that work with us would say we're accelerating that upside. And so they're getting a smaller piece of a bigger pie that's coming out of the oven faster. Also, we really try to earn our keep. So if I'm a potential LP and a manager and I see that a percentage, call it 10, 20, 30 percent of the manager is is owned by a third party, who is that group? Is it just some passive minority interest that does nothing? Well that's a, could be a problem. If it's a group of peer asset owners that are actively credentializing that manager supporting them in these areas we call core capital formation operations risk management and enterprise strategy it may be a positive because the big risk when you're an lp why is it so hard to raise a fund one or a fund two or even sometimes a fund three despite the fact that you know we did a study with mit last year that argues that those vintages tend to outperform Why is it so hard? It's operational risk or the perception thereof. And so if we can come in and show through facts that over time we've been able to de-risk these situations and allow the entrepreneur to focus on investment performance and that they have succeeded, I think the view is that we're adding value for our piece just as any other partner should. And so I think while Asset owners may need to get comfortable with the notion that another asset owner who came in earlier got a bit better deal than they did. As long as they can get past that ego part of it and really look at the value that they're getting, in my view, they should be happy with coming into a manager that has the support that our Constellation managers have.
0: What have been the biggest challenge that you've faced, either in the formation of this or the implementation thus far?
1: Well, I talked about that, that year that we spent really getting together in person, weekly, which may not sound like much, but you're talking about three continents, and Juneau is not an easy place to get to, nor is Kuwait City. London and New York are a bit easier. That was brutally difficult. I joke that I'm only 25 years old, and I just aged by two decades over the course of that time. (laughs) Wasn't difficult because anybody didn't want it to happen? it was just difficult to do it was difficult to find a solution that could work for the regulatory tax and other jurisdictional considerations the bespoke bylaws that this group has or that group has fortunately we had really involved people and i think it's starting a partnership like this is you know going back to where we started our conversation with my academic background you know it's a little bit like writing a PhD thesis. If you're not super into it, when you get started, you're probably not going to finish. And we were super into it. We wanted to do this to, to be a kind of standard bearer for a new type of institution that was owned by, by capital. I'm not going to say capitalists of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains, but there was a, a real desire to, to do something innovative that would benefit pensions and sovereigns who are in, frankly tragic circumstances in terms of shortfalls this is an experiment which is going well so far in terms of a new model that could work one we hope among many but if i had to say whether i think there will be many followers i think the answer is probably not because it's so hard to do not because it's not a good idea
0: just put some color on that you mentioned weekly face-to-face meetings How much time did you spend?
1: So we still meet all the time. I mean, not just once a quarter for our strategic committee meetings or every other week on a phone call, but just catch-as-catch-can in cities all over the world and up and down our respective organizations. And now with our managers, eventually there may be technology that helps us connect capital and opportunity in more efficient ways. But for now, there's no substitute for shoe leather. So we are... On the road a lot, actually making the human connections down, in some cases, all the way to a deal opportunity, not just to a manager and not just to the C suite of the asset owners, but up and down the masthead. So, you know, we got together, as I think I mentioned, in places like New Zealand, Tokyo, Amsterdam, The Hague, Stockholm, London, LA, San Francisco, New York, all. Because we might have been looking at a deal, there was some event there that we wanted to go to, or just because we had to get together, and so we decided to get on planes. And I think any entrepreneur will tell you that they feel lucky because they they happened to kind of hit the straightaway on the, the Daytona 500 just when their car was humming and that they could make great progress. For us, it was this incredible alignment of smart people. And I've mentioned their names, but Russ and Paul and Steve and Angela and others who were at a moment in their careers where they could do this, wanted to do this, often for no personal gain economically, but for their institutions. And it took that kind of Herculean effort to get there.
0: Well, fantastic. Daniel, before I let you go, let's
1: turn to some closing questions. What's
0: your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: I play the cello. I grew up performing and uh, actually went to the School of Music at Yale in addition to undergrad. A lot of my friends have gone on to be professional musicians. And I both envy them and don't envy them because it's a really tough life. But they get to be surrounded by incredible art all day long. I don't play as much anymore, but my boys are five and six and our oldest is just starting to get into music so whether it's something like the Star Wars theme or you know the Harry Potter theme where he plays the piano and we're starting to play together
0: oh that's great you mentioned an investment pet peeve what's your biggest overall
1: pet peeve I hate the kind of tribalism that leads to so naturally and quickly for people to a me versus you mentality we see it in politics We see it in global politics with bridges between countries metaphorically being burned down these days. And going to your questions about positive-sum game versus zero-sum game, it just frustrates me that for whatever reason, humans seemed hardwired to create clans and and define success in a narrow way. And this is the problem of our generation, is how to think globally. And it's a pet peeve in it. It feeds into investment pet peeves too, because people tend to think, well, I wanna pick the best stock or I wanna pick the best deal as against thinking who should I partner with? Because the latter question implies that you're trusting and relying on somebody else in a way that people are often not comfortable.
0: How do you use social media professionally?
1: This will be our first (laughs) attempt (laughs) to do that. So not well is the short answer. We've been like a lot of folks skittish about social media, but I think we will make careful, calculated attempts to share our message. That said, the nature of our business is not one where we need to connect with a wide audience. We don't view ourselves as influencers on fashion or vacation destinations. So I'd say we've used conferences and individual networks much more than social media. What do you do for self-growth? You know, I read a lot. Nothing that you wouldn't hear from a lot of folks. Try to exercise, spend time with the family, be outdoors, soak up the sun, enjoy natural beauty. But I've always been a voracious reader, just coming from the family that I do, and mostly nonfiction. What teaching from your parents
0: has most stayed with you?
1: So I describe my folks as academics academics i mean these are as a history professor and a developmental psychologist which is always a good line for a joke which i'll avoid here but what comes with that is love of the life of the mind so growing up we weren't focused on material wealth but things were stable they had lifetime tenure at their universities and that just that combination let us travel through ideas and that's been a great contribution i think that together with the kind of training that I got in philosophy and law school and undergrad led to a a kind of contrarian thinking, not so much in the way that you would use it with investments. If everyone else is viewing one thing, I'm going to go the opposite, which can be very valuable that I'm not so much built that way, but I am contrarian in thinking about structure. I don't accept the false distinctions like LP and GP, for example, as somehow set in stone. And that comes from my folks. Yeah.
0: All right, Daniel, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? If
1: I could send a message in a bottle back to me at twenty eight, I think I would say have kids earlier. <laughs> First of all, it's just great joy in life to have a family. But more than that, brings you out of yourself. And so much of trying to accomplish things is not actually about yourself. And the sooner you realize that in life, I think, the, ironically, the more successful you can become.
0: That's great. Daniel, thanks so much.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.